Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. The jazz session is also available for free at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. This week's guest is pianist Ellis Marsalis. He's recently reissued an album on his own Elm Records label. It originally came out in 1985. It's a duet session with Eddie Harris, and it also features uh, music with pianist Jonathan Batiste that was recorded uh, earlier this year. The album is called Homecoming, and this is the title track. My guest is pianist Ellis Marsalis. Uh, he has had a storied career as both an educator and a performer. Uh, just recently, on his own Elm record label, he re-released an album called Homecoming, which was a duet session with Eddie Harris in the mid-1980s, and it's uh, augmented with uh, brand new music recorded not too long ago with pianist Jonathan Batiste. It is my pleasure to welcome Ellis Marsalis to the show. Thank you so much for being here. You're quite welcome. Can we? Uh, I, I want to kind of cover a fair amount of ground if we can. But can we start with this uh, this homecoming record? How did you and uh, Eddie Harris end up doing this duet session together? I was uh, working at a club in New Orleans that uh, occasionally I think Eddie had worked also uh, called Tyler's Tyler's Big Art. I was doing a Wednesday night. Coincidentally, while I was there, Eddie called and talked as an owner about booking himself into the club. I don't know if Eddie mentioned it or if the, the owner did and saying maybe the two uh, a duo would be good you know cut back on a lot of expensive because the owner called me over and says hey this is Eddie Harris on the phone. Well, I knew Eddie uh, already and uh, we talked and agreed that to do a duo performance in the club when we did the duo performance, a local musician, well, I say local, he's all over the place, David Tarkanowski heard us and said, man, you two guys ought to do a record. So David set it up for us to go to uh, Dallas, Texas, and uh, make the recording, which ultimately became Homecoming. Now, the title track on this recording is a composition of yours, and as I understand it, it almost 
didn't make it onto the record, right? You almost decided not to bring it with you, is that right? Yeah, that's true. I was getting ready to catch the plane, and it was just laying on the desk, you know, and I said, wow, I don't know, I might. Well, maybe I'll bring it anyway, you know, and I just brought it as an afterthought. And as Eddie and I were going through uh, different pieces, we went through that one, and Eddie liked it. So we uh, recorded that, and uh, it became the title selection of the album, Slash CD. What are the particular uh, kind of either joys or challenges of playing in a duet format where the other instrument is a horn? When you're a piano player, quite often you do accompanying accompaniment roles, and the challenge would vary from person to person. Uh, it's not that much different than when you see uh, an accompanist and an operatic singer or an accompanist with a violinist or whatever. There's more of that that, that happens in uh, European art music than it does in jazz. But there's quite a bit that occurs, you know, with, with a duo. In fact, I think uh, Earl Hines, I think, did a duo with uh, Louis Armstrong. The challenge, basically is to think in a holistic manner as the piano player. Now, when I say holistic, what I mean is the modern jazz pianist, for lack of a, a better description, became comfortable in rhythm sections, which means uh, there was a bass player and a drummer and then the piano player. So the accompaniment was a, sort of like a division between the three the piano, the bass, and the drums. So you have to learn to think, as they say, outside the box. So if you've got a horn player, you have to be able to think in a holistic manner so that you become a rhythm section. That's basically what the challenge is, to be able to uh, play where the accompaniment is needed. The second half of this record is uh, primarily a duet piano performance with you and a pianist named Jonathan Batiste. Can you talk about uh, how the two of you got together? Well, Jonathan's a young guy. He's from New Orleans and had a couple of lessons with me. And I was playing in a... I can't remember this town. And it was a, I was playing with a quartet. And Jonathan was playing with his group and at some point, we started to do two pianos on that particular engagement. And uh, my son Jason was listening, and he said, man, that's, that's a good idea. <laughs> so when we did the necessary transfer of uh, the homecoming to, uh, to CD, we were in the studio, and Jason said, man, you and uh, Jonathan should maybe do a couple of songs. I said, yeah, it's fine. So then the two of us, already in the studio, just recorded it, you know, put it down.
you two really sound like you've been playing together for a long time, which it sounds like is not the case, but you really have a, a great rapport with one another. There's a, there's a cultural thing, for one. We're both from New Orleans, and there's also musical, the musical references. The pianist make, uh, uses the, basically some of the same references. When I say references, what I mean is which, what sometimes people may call bebop. And Jonathan is familiar with that. He's also familiar with the New Orleans style playing. It's com- it, it, it was a comfortable fit because of all of the, the, the cultural connections, if you will. Now, you are obviously known as a piano player, but uh, my understanding is that you actually started out as a clarinet player. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. I did. I started out <laughs> uh, as a clarinet player. I went all the way to university as a clarinet player. But when I graduated from college, I couldn't see how I was going to do anything with a clarinet. And uh, I was only kind of partially interested in uh, playing clarinet anyway, because most of the clarinet players during the time I was in school and, and graduated were headed for symphony orchestras. And traditional jazz in New Orleans, which had clarinet players, was kind of on the wane. And I was, since I was never really around any of the older players who played that style of music, the clarinet didn't, uh, it, uh, it wasn't reinforced as it may have been if I had been around some of the older players playing that early music. I discovered playing piano. First of all, there were not a lot of piano players in the city of New Orleans, and the few that were around when I was there had either left town or, or whatever, you know, some maybe quit playing or whatever. And I would start to get calls to go and play on jobs as a piano player. And when I graduated from Dillard University, I had to make a decision. So I said, man, I had to decide what I'm going to do. Because uh, I was about to get off of my daddy's nickel and get on my own. So I thought about the piano and uh, decided that, well, maybe I need to start seriously practicing this instrument which is what I did. Your time in the Marine Corps, did that uh, cause you to focus on the piano as well? Well, it allowed me to pick up uh, a couple of skills that I would find very useful. I was in the Marine Corps band in California, not the one in Washington, the one in California. And the bass player from a Marine TV show called Dress Blues came over to the band area and says, yeah, man, I heard that you're a piano player, man. How'd you like to be on TV? Well, you know, I look at this guy. I don't even know him. So I'm saying, yeah, right. So he says, no, I'm serious. A piano player, his enlistment's up, and we're trying to find a piano player. And we'd like for you to come and audition for the show. So I did. And uh, they accepted me. Uh, I got the feeling that there was not a whole lot of piano players in the Marine Corps in that area anyway. <laughs> I spent most, just about all of my time in a group called the Corps Four. We all had our dress blue uniforms on. This is a, a kind of a kind of an 
show. Uh, the TV show was entitled Dress Blues to hire a pianist or a union musician, you know, but in this most time it was a pianist, even though this is not a commercial situation, being in the, the military. So they hired a piano player named Walter Gross, who happened to be the composer of the song Tenderly. And he stayed for a while, and he left. So they hired, after him, another pianist named Calvin Jackson, who was a wonderful pianist. Pretty good jazz player, excellent classical player. And he left the show. When he left, uh, I guess the, they worked out something with the union, where the union says, well, okay, you don't have to hire anybody after that. So the lieutenant came to me and said, well, we're not going to have anybody to accompany. Because, see, the show had different vocalists come on, mostly female. And the uh, civilian pianists would be there to accompany the vocals because they were members of uh, the whatever the union that the singers would join. So I would just function with the four of us who were all Marines. So when uh, I was informed by the lieutenant, they said, well, you it. You're going to have to do the accompanying because we don't have to hire anybody. Can you do that? And I said, yeah, it ain't nothing to that. So the first opportunity came. I can't remember the name of the singer, but when it came time to play, my mind went blank. <laughs> and I'm trying to say, man, what do I play? What do I play to myself? And it was like, I guess divine intervention or something. But like something says, remember what Calvin Jackson did. And I did. I remember that Calvin used to play accompanying notes based upon the the lyric of the song. So uh, if the song had lyric with clouds, he'd play little things sound like clouds. And that, and that was my beginning of actually working on and in how to do accompaniment uh, with singers. When uh, when I was a kid, the very first concert I ever saw, my grandfather took me to, and it was uh, a double bill with Al Hurt and Pete Fountain. And uh, I, can you talk a little bit about Al Hurt and uh, what what kind of a guy he was, and how you ended up playing with him? Yeah, Al Al was a fantastic trumpet player, but he was a showman, not nearly as as funny as he wished that he could have been, because he had played in uh, the Tommy Dyson band and Sinatra 
wanted somehow to be connected to that. But nonetheless, how I started playing with him, I was, uh, I've been teaching school in uh, a little small town called Brobridge for a couple of years. And the uh, music supervisor, the superintendent, he and I had a disagreement of philosophical persuasion. So I resigned. And I came back to New Orleans and was playing. I was playing at the Playboy Club. Oh, I forgot exactly how long. I was kind of disappointed at the way things were going with me. Because by this time, you know, I was already married, had four kids. And I said, man, this, this Playboy Club is not going anywhere. So I quit and I started doing uh, assortment of things. But anyway, I wasn't really doing much of anything. I was working my father's place of business. And I had done some engagement at Al's club behind different people who would come in and perform at Al Hurt's nightclub. So I was kind of known, at least to be uh, able to play. And uh, Al's piano player left, uh, whatever. And the manager had recommended me to the clarinet player who was sort of like what they call a straw boss. And he called me, uh, Joe Spittle, Joseph Spittlera. He called me and he said, yeah, man, I was looking for a piano player. Are you interested? I said, yeah, because at that time I wasn't doing much in music at all. And uh, so I joined his band as a result of that. And was in there for three years. I stayed in his band until 1970. In uh, in 2001, you retired from uh, the University of New Orleans, and we talked about all your performing. And obviously, you you raised uh, a, a big gang of of fine sons. How have you balanced all those pieces of your life? How how have you kept them all uh, kind of in play? Well, I married the greatest lady in the world sort of kept all of us in perspective <laughs> with each other. I mean, this is no modesty intended. I mean, it's, it's really true. Uh, she was the cornerstone of the success of the family. There's only four of our kids that's really involved in music. We have a total of six sons. Our third son is a computer consultant, and he's also a poet. He self-published at least one book. And our fifth son is autistic, and he lives with us. He's uh, 38 now. What does being from New Orleans mean to you? What, what does it mean for your music? What does it mean for you as a as a person? Well, it doesn't mean anything to me as a person, but being involved in music is the best place in the world. You know, it's like a, like a farm of stumbling on fertile soil, and the weather's pleasant all the time. I mean, you can grow anything <laughs> in a situation like that. And had I, if I were not a musician, I would have very different opinions about New Orleans. Now, what that would be, I don't know. You know, I may even find another reason to sing the praises of New Orleans. But being a musician, you know, it's, it, it's the best place in the world, especially being a jazz musician. From from your perspective, and I'm I'm only asking you obviously to you know speak on behalf of yourself, but 
How do you see New Orleans doing these days? I, I guess mostly the cultural recovery I'm interested in uh, your perspective on. Well, I don't think there's a recovery of culture at all. The culture is already here. And I think one of the main reasons why the culture of New Orleans is the way that it is is because the culture comes from the bottom up. That is, it's not like a town, like a city that has five, ten, fortune 500 companies, which has an influence on the populace as a whole because of the very nature of the magnitude of fortune 500 companies. And, uh, I mean, that's not a good or bad thing. I mean, that, that the effect of uh, that makes a difference. Like, for example, Detroit having the major automotive industries and also uh, Kellogg. And when those auto industries started to hurt and ran into problems, it was like the people in the cities may or may not have figured out what to do. New Orleans, on the other hand, is a poor city. That's not a good or bad thing. I mean, it's a poor city because there's never been enough of, of a major corporation to generate an, uh, an economy that would make the city different from what it was. So for the most part, music became a major part of an industry from the tourist standpoint. A lot of tourists came and still do. And the laws here, for example, if you come to New Orleans and you go in a club, and you listen to the band, you might stay there 10 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever. And you're sitting there having a drink. If you decide, well, there's another band down the street, and I want to go hear that band. So you tell the bartender, bartender, give me a go-kart. So he takes your drink, pours it in a cup, you walk out the door and go down the street. Now, there's some towns that I know of that if you walk out in the street with a drink, you get end up under the jail. <laughs> you see, so that's uh, uh, one of the things that makes New Orleans what it is. And sitting on that big Mississippi River, I'm not sure if it, it used to be anyway. There used to be uh, boats, boat rides, and bands would play on them. Because I played a couple of engagements on the boat rides. It goes up a certain distance to the Mississippi and then it turn around and come back. You see, so there's always something about New Orleans that has to do with people having a good time. And people like to have a good time. My guest is pianist and educator Ellis Marsalis. Uh, he's got a, a new recording out on the Elm record label, uh, which is a label he actually started. It's called Homecoming. Uh, it's a duet record with Eddie Harris. And then the second uh, portion of it is a piano duet with uh, pianist Jonathan Batiste. Uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, and I'm really uh, happy that you took the time to do it. Thanks so much for being on the show.
That's music from Ellis Marsalis with pianist Jonathan Batiste from the new album Homecoming, which is actually a combination of a reissued album from the 80s with Eddie Harris and Ellis Marsalis and new music recorded uh, earlier this year. You've been listening to The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of The Jazz Session is also available for free at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. The Jazz Session has an email mailing list, which is a great way to win free music. You can sign up at thejazzsession.com. If you're on Facebook, there's a group for The Jazz Session, and I give away music there, too. The theme music for this show is by the Respect Sextet, online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed The Jazz Session's logo. The Jazz Session is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States license. Thanks very much for listening. Please support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.